Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 70, part one. Someone had triumphed, and someone had been subdued in the room next to mine, and now there was a silence except for the voices of things not animated by human consciousness. The walls creaking with refrain, a curtain rustling, a wire basket upon which the wind strummed fitful music. Perhaps I slept for a while, or perhaps I dreamed. Perhaps I was awake and dreaming of the past, as if the past persisted. For here, where the rustling red light beam disturbed the darkness which should have enclosed me, here, so many miles away, so many years away from home, there was a faceless woman, a Mrs. Hogden, who, though I never saw her, implored my attention. If one is pursued by a phantom, a creature of the mind only, then at least the phantom should be ethereal. But this Mrs. Hogden, rustling importantly behind me, was fat, corporal, moon-eyed, not beautiful, waddling in and out of my dreams, so confused, so confusing. She would seem to be another than she was, a substitute for the true subject of my dreams, on whom all dreams hinged. Miss Mackintosh, the sand blowing in her eyes, the water whirling at her feet, so that I must never waste my time daydreaming, or even night-dreaming, she would have disapproved of most ardently, and then, it was of her, and then it was of her I dreamed the most when she was dead, in fact, of her only. Miss Mackintosh, with a firm hand and a resolute mind of the unswerving ideal of common sense, brought me up to understand that my mother's way of life was far from average. It was not to be imitated by a good woman such as she saw me becoming, a woman like herself, simple and average and clear-eyed. And then, years later, there came this Mrs. Hogden to the house, there in the place where Miss Mackintosh had been, there in that very playroom where Miss Mackintosh, my old nursemaid, had once walked back and forth, clapping her hands as I did my physical exercise or my bastion stitches to hold together surf and shore. It was her great desire that I should be brought up as a kindly extrovert. Introversion was something she simply could not bear. Mrs. Hogden, whom I never saw, would rustle behind me when I wearied of Miss Mackintosh, whom I had seen with terrible clarity. It was a trick of my imagination, the substituting of the one for the other. Miss Mackintosh and Mrs. Hogden were widely different from each other. <clears throat> Even a fool could recognize at a glance. And yet the substitution would take place like the moon appearing where there had been the sun in the sky, Mrs. Hogden being the lesser radiance. This fat old woman, according to Lisa Lund, my mother's young companion who took my place when carrying a large suitcase I escaped from my mother's house, was a very dubious character, a shoplifter, or something equally vicious, she was sure. For who knew human fallacies better than Lisa Lund? It would be physicists working for her living in order to help support her mother, who was poor and mad and dreamed that she was rich, even as my mother dreamed that she was poor. Lisa Lund prided herself on seeing immediately through Mrs. Hogden's pretension. During my absence, this fat old woman appeared one day at the door with all her worldly goods, either on her person or in her two-door Ford, which stood stalled in the driveway under the dripping trees. She was, according to her own introduction, a teacher of arithmetic. But Lisa Lund, surveying her overladen person, was sure that she was one of those faceless shoplifters her sister watched out for in a high tower at the ten-cent store, such as the old man who stole nothing but egg beaters, for which he had no use, no mortal use, whatever. The old man had pleaded that they brought him a step closer to his dead wife. The attic of his house was full of egg-beaters. The life I required was a life which required, like his, a lost companion, not merely the self-centered affliction of the right hand loving the left. And what if there were an egg-beater and no egg to beat, I wondered dreamily. Perhaps there were people who were doomed to disappointment. Mrs. Hogden whispered behind me. I was afraid to turn my head, as when half asleep one knows very well that the coat hanging on a nail in the darkness is a man. One even sees the coat sleeve lift. 
She had a broad-cheeked, smiling face and bleached hair arranged in plastered curls across her low forehead. Her face was blandly expressionless except for her slightly aggressive chin, which betrayed perhaps her true character. She might have been a panhandler at the entrance of a subway. Her light-colored eyes were abnormally big and seemed to focus on no object, although she was arrayed in the most diverse objects. A smashed hat with a wilted ostrich feather, stump-toed velvet slippers covered with sand, a beaded bag, cardboard boxes, a silk stocking which crawled out of a capacious pocket. She was wearing at least four coats of seemingly graduated sizes, the one fitting snugly over the other, and all contributing to the illusion that she was not so tall as she was wide. Oh, she was a creature compounded of illusions. Every coat pocket seemed to be burdened with packages or even such unwrapped objects as a silk stocking and a fluted teapot. Her dress, visible where the coats did not meet, was purple-laced, which seemed, in view of the fact that she had been driving in a cold wind all afternoon, an extravagance like the ostrich feather. Cardboard boxes held together by numerous strings were ready to burst out from all over her squat person, just as she herself seemed ready to burst out of her coats and her lemon-colored gloves, from which twisted strings extended. She was carrying, among other precarious objects, an empty birdcage, held in the crook of her little finger, and a package of birdseed. Draped around her rotund shoulders was a row of Javanese temple bells which whispered as she spoke. There was a tape measure around her stubby neck. Innumerable strings of beads made her look more like a Christmas tree than a human being, and there she stood in the hallway, bustling and officious and smiling, as she announced to Lisa Lund that she hoped she had not arrived too late, for her mother was expecting her. Lisa Lund, she naturally is supposed to be the daughter of the house. Poor Lisa Lund, the amateur physicist. But are not all physicists amateurs? My invalided mother was expecting Mrs. Hogden or Mrs. Logden. She mumbled thickly herself, the dear companion, who had been hired with such wild enthusiasm. It had not been necessary that either of them have an interview in advance of their agreement. They had both understood so well that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Mrs. Hogden promised that she would surely reflect my mother's every mood. Lisa Lund was to tell my mother that, true to her promise, Mrs. Hogden had arrived, a little breathlessly, and had brought all her personal possessions with her, everything she owned in the wide world, so that there was nothing to go back home for. And besides, she had sold her home to one of those European refugees who had come from a town filled with storks, families of storks on every rooftop. If they could stay in the town, why couldn't he? Would James, the chauffeur, be so kind as to carry the rest of Mrs. Hogden's things in the car to the house, my mother having told her that she would have James to help her? Her mattress, she feared, was very wet. The car she had ridden in was certainly stalled, the engine cold. But unfortunately, it had not died out until the very moment it reached the door. The ivory-colored door. There had been eight ivory-colored doors. Mrs. Hogden's eyes had watered with automatic tears, although she was still smiling. She had the most sephiric look of an old alcoholic. You could tell from the start just what she was, Lisa Lund said. Her eyes were pink like a rabbit's, and her nostrils continually twinkled. There was long, looped hair growing from her chin. Just run and tell your mother like a dear child, Mrs. Hogden said to Lisa Lund, whose mother was fifteen miles away in a telescope tenement. I am here, old Johnny on the spot. She was already relieving herself of packages. Now a shoehorn clattered from her purse and now a fork. Where, she asked, shall I put my property? Where? She turned her head from side to side like a pigeon, seeing nothing. Or did she see everything at a glance? Who could tell? Receiving the agency's letter, which enclosed my mother's letter, offering her, or a woman like her, a job for the rest of her natural life, but no longer, Mrs. Hogden had been delighted by the prospect of an endless employment in such a situation as was carefully described. After the first speculative instant, she had not hesitated. She had sold the Dutch windmill, which was her home on Upper Long Island, an old windmill with winking eyes and broken arms, and had brought only those objects which she could carry with her in a tour to which she felt a sentimental attachment. 
One needs what you have now for a lopsided four-poster bed carved with lion's heads and an overstuffed chair that was falling to pieces and the andirons from the, and the andirons from the fireplace that looked like hunting dogs. It was sad that she had to leave the Dutch windmill behind her, there on a ledge of grass-tufted earth overlooking the long sweep of the grey beach. But after all, this life is made up of deprivations, most of which Mrs. Hogden had experienced in her long life. Mrs. Hogden, though, was smiling broadly and not likely to tell the nature of her experience. The longest life seemed short, she smiled. Hers was perhaps the gift of prophecy. Mrs. Hogden or Mrs. Logden, nobody knew which it was, as nobody thought to ask. A rose by any other name would smell so sweet, my mother said when told of this uncertainty. Would smell strong, Lisa Lind said. Lisa Lind said. It was winter, yes, and Mrs. Hogden had been living all alone in that Dutch, wi Dutch windmill, where there was only sand mixed with crystal snow at the doorway and where an arctic turn with that black-rimmed eye had had the amazing habit of stopping every year for the simple purpose it seemed of looking at her. Year after year, like the tides coming in, most distressing, the arctic turn's punctual arrival every year, most distressing to Mrs. Hogden, who realized that he was compelled by his own nature to circle the earth from pole to pole as if he were some kind of minor planet on its course in the starry endless heavens. But for what reason would he fly from one bleak spot to another, and why had he always singled her out? And why did he sit and stare at her with his black-rimmed eye? What did he, he want to look at Mrs. Hogden for? She had never been one of those naked bathers in the surf. He might have been a different turn each year, but he was always the same turn, she knew, for he was slightly unsteady on his feet, even lurching. There was simply no explanation for his coming to look at her in that insulting way every year. No explanation but his sheer perversity. Maybe it was all an accident, his coming. At any rate, it had just seemed to her that she was wasting her life away, that Dutch windmill was always difficult to heat, was uninhabitable, and there were no neighbors, and there was no one to talk to. So when the agency had written in closing my mother's letter offering her, or a woman like her, a job for the rest of her natural life, but no longer, why had it seemed a solution to her problems to come as quickly as possible before it was too late? Here she was, breathless, still breathless, for she had driven a long way, looking back every once in a while to see whether that white bird was following her, but it was always a naughty child throwing a snowball. The bird was not following her, could have no inkling of her present whereabouts, for he had only one scheduled flight from pole to pole, his instinct. And Mrs. Hogden had made, besides, quite a few left turns and right turns and had gone around and round a block looking for a convenient parking space. She was considerably inland then. Now she was on the coastline again as our house had its back to the ocean, and no wonder, no wonder, she said, who would want to look at the ocean? No wonder my mother had black curtains at the back of the many-windowed house. My mother was a mourning for the ocean. Mrs. Hogden had gone to the great trouble of parking her car on a steep, sleek, covered incline in order to shop for a small three-legged blackboard and a box of colored chalk. which my mother instructed her to bring for the first lesson in arithmetic. Two and two, always making four, according to Mrs. Hogden, who looked uncertainly at Lisa Lund. That was all my mother wished to be taught, over and over again, since her last companion, a young physics teacher, had confused her most shamefully and ought to be ashamed of herself, ought to be shaken upside down like a shoplifter by the store detective until the stars rattled. Sick room was to be turned into a schoolroom now, however in the past forgotten, for that was what my mother wished. As soon as Mrs. Hogden could get her gloves off, but as her brain felt like an iceberg, she would also require a cup of tea with the peppermint dissolved in it if that was not asking too much. They would then have their first lesson in addition, Mrs. Hogden predicted beaming, or they could begin with subtraction. If Farmer Brown had four apples, Mrs. Hogden said seraphically, licking her lips, and you took two apples away from him, dear, dear, that would be unkind.
How many apples would Farmer Brown have left? There is no Farmer Brown, of course. You must first imagine him. How many apples he has, has not. How many you take away from him and those he has not. Dear, dear. Mrs. Hogden would require at least four apples in order to make her demonstrations, visual education being so progressive. But there was no worry, for she had brought the fruit herself along with that mattress. Alas, however, the difficulties ahead. My mother, informed of the presence of this overdressed, overtalkative woman who had arrived when nobody was expecting her, affected the most profound, glazed astonishment, declaring that she had never heard of such a person that had certainly made no arrangements with her or any agency representing her. She was an impostor, a liar, a daydreamer, a thief. My mother had never written a letter to Mrs. Hogden in her life, and that was that. She should be told that she had dri- turned in at the wrong driveway. There were nine driveways. Yet if my mother had never written a letter inviting Mrs. Hogden to her house, how could she have learned so much of my mother's life, even her dream life? For as the argument between my mother and Mrs. Hogden proceeded, Lisa Lund, acting as the messenger, became increasingly apparent that she knew a great many details which only my mother would have, could have divulged to her. My mother seemed to dictate a letter in a rhapsodic mood as her eyes glittered like sharp pointed diamonds. From nobody else could Mrs. Hogden have learned so much of my mother's most private life. Who but my mother could have told Mrs. Hogden that the head of Alcibiades was in the drain pipe, literally? Who but my mother would have mentioned James? And what was all this about a whale swimming into my mother's bedroom? And what was all this about droves of peaceful whales committing suicide upon a lonely beach? Granted, yes, it was faintly impressive that Mrs. Hogden should know of such matters, my mother conceded, finally. Nevertheless, how does she know who Mrs. Hogden was? The woman was a puzzle to her. Not once did she express a desire to see the woman. 